Tony Taylor migrated to Australia from the UK. He has found great personal reward through participation in the performing arts, commencing his career as a drama teacher. An invitation to participate in an improvisation workshop led him to become an original member of the seminal Australian performing group at the Pram Factory in Melbourne. This crucible of creative energy would launch some of the country's leading actors and playwrights. At the Pram Factory, Taylor was part of a theatre collective and found acting and creative roles in the premiere of David Williamson's Don's Party and the iconic Hills Family Show, a vaudeville-themed entertainment that enjoyed considerable success and a wide tour. The Hills Family Show brought him to the attention of Sydney practitioners and extensive work at the Nimrod Theatre Company and the original Australian production of The Venetian Twins. A Life in the Theatre has also seen Taylor contribute dynamic performances in productions of The Life and Adventure of Nicholas Nickleby, Sweeney Todd, The Man of La Mancha and The Importance of Being Earnest. His writing accomplishments swim in a range of genres, drama, review, comedy, cabaret and children's theatre. Needless to say, it is an extensive contribution to theatre in Australia and Tony Taylor shares vast anecdote and history in this candid and illuminating episode of Stages. And the great thing about podcasts is you can consume them at your own... Well, one of my favourites is... um is Radio Echoes, where you can get almost every radio program, comedy, drama, in the world, in English-speaking world. So I've been listening to Beyond Our Can and Around the Horn, uh, you know, Kenneth Horn. Right. You can get all the Hancocks, you can get all the Goons, you can get all that, take it from here and stuff, which was sort of pivotal in, in my childhood growing up. Because you grew up in the UK, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. So was um, it's a time before television, I guess, and you're listening to radio serials and comedy shows. Um, in 1952, through 52 coronation, 52. Yep. Our family was the first to get a television in the street. The whole street came in to watch the coronation, and I can still remember some of it. The kids all went berserk and ran all over the house and garden while they were all sort of like doing all the pompous circumstance. But as soon as it came to now, come on, she's going to be crowned now. You come, come in and sit down. And we and I remember watching the crown being put on her match. So how many households would have? Oh, there would have been about five, six, right. six households in this that we were invited to come into the street. Um, a time before social distancing. It, a long before that. So, what, what do you think this toilet paper thing's about? Why are people clamming? Somebody saw, somebody started it, I think. Someone saw someone with a pile of toilet paper and went, I, that means something. That le- lemmings mentality. So it spread like the virus has spread. Yes. That awful kind of, I must have toilet roll before I can't have any more. It's bizarre. Bizarre. We were walking down the street um, at the height of how difficult it was. We had about two rolls left and we went into Woolworths and we'd been going into uh, into Woolworths and Coles and IGA, nothing, 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 you know, not even old telephone books. And um, we, I went into Big W and we'd been looking for so long that when we saw this pile 
a woman was standing, like a guard was standing in front of it, and there were big packets of them. And we both went like this. And Sheldon said to the woman, are they for sale? She said, yes, only one. Are we allowed to buy one? And she said, yes, you can have, a, you can have one, only one. So we bought it. It turned out to contain 45 rolls. Right. And then as we were walking home, people were stopping in their cars yelling, where'd you get that? Where'd you get that? And we'd say, Big W, there's only about 16 left. Off they'd go. But we've never done the hoarding, really. Well, you've still got those 45 rolls. And in a two-bum household... That's right. That's going to go a long way. I know, I know. So when did you move to Australia? We moved in 1959. And was there a reason? Yes. Well, of course there's a reason, but what is the There reason? were two reasons. Right. One, it was an economic slump in England at the time. There was a, a real recession. My father, being a plumber, um, was not getting work. And I'd started the first year of grammar school. And my sister was still in primary school. But the big main reason was my father was an alcoholic and my mother, being the manipulative woman she was, realised that this was possibly what could be an example of what is known to be a, ge a geographical cure. What will happen is if he leaves the town and his habits, then he'll get well. So That's we good, up and good thinking. It's 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 good thinking, but it's not practical thinking because ultimately, a person with an addiction takes the addiction with with them. So when we were on the boat coming over, he went back to the ways. We never we hardly ever saw him. Always drunk, and um, she then her thinking went well. This is just six weeks on the. The boat when we get to Australia he will stop and well of course he didn't for many years 20 odd years but when he stopped he stopped through AA and he became my father again Wow at what age I would be about 21 22 right. when he got sober so you could start to forge some sort of relationship then well I yes guess, we, which you had never we had did. before we did, and, and of course, we joined a, a program called Al-Anon, which is for the friends and family of alcoholics. And the philosophy behind Al-Anon is the same, exactly the same as the 12-step program, which is AA, but it's, it's geared at getting us well. Because we finally realised that we were all ill, terribly ill, with the effects of the disease. And we were then told that it is in fact a disease and therefore you're not fighting the person you don't hate the person you hate the behavior but you hate the cause you hate the disease but then after a while you don't even get to to hate anything mm. was there a trigger that caused him to become sober yes he got he, he got his he was in his second his second bout in a mental institution and the doctor told him when he was leaving that he had six months to live if he picked up a drink. 
and a voice in him said, I'm sick of being sick. So for the two years before then, he'd been dabbling in AA, but he'd been breaking and, you know, having moments of sobriety, and then he'd fall off the wagon and so on, so on, so on, so on. Um, that was the last time. And from then on, we bonded as a family. He became very, very spiritual and eventually became a sponsor for many other recovering alcoholics and greatly loved and greatly missed when he died. And he died not of complications from alcoholism, but he died from the bloody smokes. Ah. That's the one thing he could Another not addiction. kick was the smokes. And that is what a lot of alcoholics who, who attend the program, uh, strong coffee, strong tea, and lots of cigarettes, you know. Shift the focus. Mm. TT, you're in the business of telling stories. Why are stories important to a civilization? One, they, they fire the imagination. Totally fire it. You are transported to a world that you, via the story, the words of the story, fill in the missing blanks. What They're talking about a castle. There's a man walking along the parapet of a castle. You see not just the castle, you see the sky. You see the parapet. You see the stairs. You see people in the courtyard. You see the people beyond the courtyard. You see the countryside. You see, you see everything. So if you've got imagination, then you've got the means to, one, interpret the story's meaning, but two, to create stories of your own. Great. And getting back to my childhood, that's where I used to escape when things got really, really bad at home. That was a way of escape, was to go into story and into play acting and into imagination and into... Did you have siblings? Yeah, sister. Right. So you do that with her? Oh, we were inseparable. All the, all the kids in the neighbourhood too, I guess. Oh, we were terrible. We were instigators. Right. <laughs> I think our bond, our imaginative bond was so strong that it actually bewitched other children. And we, we dragged them in and made them part of the games that we invented spooky games or exciting games or adventure games, travel games, games involving building carts on the back of bicycles and pretending they were trains. And I mean, it was really a world we had entered, but we'd gone into it because we knew subconsciously that things were in a terrible state at home. And the fear I can't speak for my sister, but for me, I've, I've been carrying fear, terror, panic almost all my whole life. And only in the last few years have I embraced um, meditation and relaxation. And it's starting to go, just as I'm about to kick the bucket, <laughs> truly. I mean, it's not long. Um, I'm finding peace. You're also residing in the glorious Blue Mountains. Now. Yes, it helps. Does that help? It bit? helps a lot. It helps immensely. And of course, in this time of um, of the pandemic, uh, I'm finding reading difficult. I'm finding writing difficult because I don't have deadlines. And 
So I've found that um, doing the garden, we've created a garden out there. A couple of other residents of the apartments have we've created a garden, and I've gone back to um, to making things like hands. Just the, the carpet you see in front of you, I made, and now I'm I'm restoring a stitch at a time. Continuing to be have that creative bug. It's to do. Me. It's to do with um, not having not being sitting there not knowing what to do if you're actually using your hands to do something then your brain can actually go off in its the direction it wants to go to are you still an avid knitter well this is what i do now right weaving yeah it's it's tufting right yes i am i do create all the time who taught you to knit uh my my, i don't knit so much now um my mother did the thing about knitting is that I hate counting stitches. Right. It's horrible. <laughs> In case you, you lose count. Well, yeah, if you lose count, then you've got to go back and pull it all out. That's such a bore. A stitch at a time on a, on a rug is, is da- down there on my hands and knees. This will be finished in four months, a stitch at a time. Glorious. Yeah. So it's very important to me is to, is to keep doing things with my hands. Are very important, and and you're fond, uh, I'd say, of bright, vivid colours. Yes, they're happy colours. I guess. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, colours really important to me. Um, I don't like I don't like sort of like that modern kind of bl- bland whites and greys and creams and things. Yeah, soulless. I like yeah. I like something that shouts at you a bit. You know. Discovered a wonderful. Um, Pod, not a podcast. It's a YouTube thing about a woman who gets inspired for her desi- interior design from from um, film sets, right? And she analyzes. I, the first one we saw the other night was was walking through the house in that Disney film called The Parent Trap with um, Haley Mills playing twins. They they walk you through the house and explain the intimate relationship between the film the actor, the costume, and the set in terms of colour. And we learnt something about the room that we are now currently about to finish in terms of colour. We learnt one extraordinary thing uh, about uh, letting the eye of the person who comes into the house see not only the room that they're in, but see beyond the room to another room with the colour that's already in the room that they're in. And you go, that's... That's amazing. That's fascinating. So, <laughs> you've made me remember that wonderful episode of Abfab, where Pat and Eddie go to a housewarming, yeah. and, and the house is completely white. Oh, but they've taken along a gift which is wrapped in white paper, <laughs> and they put it down, and they can't, <laughs> can't find, find it. it. <laughs> How wonderful! <laughs> what was school like for you? Horrible. Not a good student, or I was a good student in England. Although, yet again, the fear, the terror. Um, when you go to England, when I was in Morecambe, which is a, a seaside resort. Is that near Wise? Yeah. Right. Um, it's on the northwest coast, <laughs> except when the tide comes in and it's on the southwest coast. Um, it's it's a, res- a resort about 60 miles north of Blackpool, which is, of course, the tourist Lancashire tourist spot crass and garish and dreadful but we loved it Um, Morecambe was 
um, a very had been a very genteel um, resort, but its downfall was it tried to compete with Blackpool. It tried to become as crass and dreadful as that. Um, but at its in its um, heyday, it had two piers, which had in su- in the summer season had two variety shows simultaneously running, four theatres, including the longest running repertory company in the uh, U- UK, with Thora Hurd, for example, Dame Thora, Dame Thora Hurd, whose photo- whose autograph I used to have. Um, she was the she that was her training ground. So it was. Uh, it had uh, seven cinemas, and when we left, it was fading rapidly. It was become because of the holidays in Europe that people were taking. It became very, very, very shabby. But in the last summer of us of fifty nine, Tony Richardson made the Entertainer film with Laurence Olivier and Joan Plowright, Miriam Carlin, um, in in Morecambe. They made it and they filmed inside the two or three theatres that were then existing. I was then, in my first year, coming to the end of my first year of grammar school, and I had been in a mixed primary school and I always played with the girls. Because I was a fairly delicate little child, quite androgynous, very pretty, and often was mistaken for a girl. I think now, in retrospect, I think if I had been born now, I would probably be bordering on trans. I would have been very interested in going, I think I might be a girl in a man's a boy's body. Not then, but I certainly hated sport, was terrible at sport, was always last to be picked. That awful humiliation of, I'll have him, I'll have him, I'll have him. Uh, So when I got to grammar school, that's full-on boy, full-on sport, full-on men, full-on sweat, full-on, full-on, just full-on. And I hated it. And things weren't going well at home, at home either, you know. Um, and then, but the education I got was really amazing. That, that traditional Latin, French, maths done in a really, really, a really condensed form. And I was doing really well. Who were some of the teachers that engaged you? Do you remember their names or what they were like? Um, they were all scary. They're all terribly scary. They were all they were all done through fear. Yes, yeah. and the, there was a, pre, a really strong prefect system where the prefects were were partly responsible for um, your behaviour, and there was punitive stuff. And there was rumours that they they the cane they had the cane. Yeah. Um, I look the whole thing of being a child for me was one source of tremendous joy in the playing section but dreadful terror in the school's section I was beaten 
as a child at school with the cane three times by three different teachers. For any particular misdemeanor? For the class laugh. So you were a class clown? I was very quick-witted. Right. <laughs> and I could make a class... I, I could make a class shriek. And that was my undoing in terms of them. There was one teacher called Mr Armstrong in uh, primary school who was my home teacher for the year. And he took, de he took dead against me because I was so girly and delicate and impish as well. And we were having uh, silent reading, it was called. Silent reading meant that you shared a book with your fellow benchmate. So you sat next to him and you turned the page over and you'd nod when, it, when, you'd read, when you'd read your bit. The other person, you'd wait until the other person got to the end. Then that person would nod. Well, I sat next to this girl called Joan Thomas, who was as big as Hattie Jakes. Uh, and, we, and I could make her laugh. I could make her laugh by just changing my face. Anyway, we got to the end of this. We were reading a book about uh, the Industrial Revolution. We got, we got, I got up to Sheffield and Sheffield's um, steel-making you know, prowess. We turned the page over and there was one full, I can still see it amazingly clearly, there was a picture in colour of a blast furnace shooting sparks into the into the colliery or the fernery or whatever it was the furnace the fernery from the fernery <laughs> that'd be right and i said oh look joan fireworks that's all i said look joan fireworks well she shrieked and mr armstrong looked up and said taylor was that you that caused this yes sir come up here he got his cane out and he was a big man, so he gave me three. And it was a public flogging too, in front mm. of class. Yeah. yeah. And when you are hit, when you're hit with a, a cane, it goes through three stages. One, the shock, no pain. Then there's the tingle, and then there's the full out, real, ghastly, ghastly, cruel, stabbing pain that goes on for hours. Later on, um, I did a stint in, in my, you know, looking for the meaning of it all. I went to a, a past life therapy session and uh, we got to talk about this and he said, you've got to write a letter to him. And don't put an address on it because it'll never find him, but, but post it. So I wrote to Mr Armstrong, knowing that he was now well and truly dead. I mean, he would have been, you know, 106 by now. So I wrote to him, Dear Mr Armstrong, I forgive you for hitting a nine-year-old child who was four times smaller than you with all the force of a, you know, football hero. You hurt me. You hurt me terribly. You hurt me to the point where I was shaken to my very root. You hurt me so I cried. You hurt me so I was humiliated. But I forgive you, Mr. Armstrong. 
Pierce, you're probably dead anyway, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> Brilliant. Hmm. Did that uh, make you feel easier? Yes, it did, and I really did forgive him. Yeah. And I know why he did it. He did it because I was a girly boy. It was a, it was a homophobic act that he was carrying out. It wasn't because I made the, the, the class laugh. It's because I'm going to beat this little faggot. Well, what age did you start to consider your sexuality? Oh, about 12. Right. Um, because Morecambe... Morecambe was an amazing place. It was a children's playground. It was full of tourists, you know. Every, my mother and my grandmother took in visitors every every sort of like season they would put up holidaymakers so strangers would be in your house but there was places to go we never feared we were out um, we would go out at 8 o'clock in the morning come back where it was still light at 8 o'clock at night with you know a shilling to buy some lunch we were on the beach because it was a, a you know it was seaside a seaside we went everywhere we 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 there were four of us, five of us in a group, and we went everywhere. We were safe as houses. But there was one particular film that was advertised as the naughtiest film in the world, and it was called The Isle of Levant. And it was a documentary about Levant, you know, the, the French island, where nudism was... And you could see previews of it, of it by sticking your eyes into a little hole and they'd show you a poster of... And I remember getting a stiffy the first time watching that. And it was a woman. It wasn't a bloke. But to shoot forward in time, add the education and all that sort of stuff. And I'll go back to Morecambe a number of times, as long as you're here for six weeks. Um, <laughs> Going forward, that education at high school when I moved into a northern suburbs high school in the north of Melbourne, unmade roads, no sewerage, no culture, no theatres in my life for a while, um, I was two years ahead academically. Right, because that education you'd had in Morecambe. Yes, but as soon as somebody said, what's the answer to this question, I'd go, boom. So that's when I had my first um, first uh, experience of the tall poppy syndrome. By the time I finished high school, my grades had plummeted down and down and down and down and down. And that is also to do with, with what was happening at home before Dad got sober. Right. Um, but Morecambe gave me... Um, we'd go to the cinema all the time. We'd go to the theatre a lot. My grandmother took me to the theatre when I was three years old and I still remember. What was it? Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, a pantomime. And I can remember a woman called Zarita, I think her name was, and she was a yogi. And she came on at the beginning of the show. She was in the first act. And she did a few things with a crocodile. I remember the crocodile? She had a crocodile, for God's sake. And she did things with snakes. And then she said, now I'm going to lie in a box... She got into a box and she said, now I'm going to lie down and be covered with sand and I'll be here in the side of the box until the end of the show. And she was. She lay there. 
I bet there was a hole in the wall where she got out and went and had a cup of tea and then got back in again. <laughs> but she laid there until the curtain call. And then they got her out, dug her up, and she did her bow. So I can remember that. And my mum said, when I sat on her knee, she said, I leant forward, like, into the space as its three-year-old kid. And um, was in. that's where I got the bug. Also from my grandmother, too, who was an amazing singer. She... Um, she was a wonderful singer, and she'd been in a concert party. I, I don't know whether the concept of that would, people would understand, but in the 14, especially in the 1914-18 war, um, she not only did she work in a factory, but at night she was part of a concert party, which was a group of people, and they would sometimes dress as heroes, and, and they would go, go into uh, factories, or they would um, go into uh, little halls and do the latest songs of the, uh, of, of the, of the time. While her husband was in the war, she was part of this concert party and she fell in love with one of the, the other um, members of the concert party, a guy called Jack, who was drop-dead gorgeous. I've got photos of them both in costume. Just beautiful. And they fell in love. But because she had promised the man that became my grandfather... It was worth fighting. He got blown up in France. He lay in a trench with 21 dead men for three days till they found him. And when he came back, he was a broken man. And he was half insane. And she had to say to Jack, I can't see you again. And they never saw each other again, ever. So she was the one that, that inspired me, I think, with hearing her sing, you know. And I was in a choir at the church in Morecambe, and uh, I, I was a high tenor and, uh, sorry, a high soprano. And um, the choir master said on the, on the last day of uh, me being at the church before we were to sail for Australia, he said, don't sing for 10 years. Just let your voice settle or work Just out where never sing for 10 years and you'll have a good voice. He said, if you go the alto tenor, you won't have as good a voice. So I didn't. I never sang again until I joined the APG at the Pram Factory and out came this voice, this rather bizarre high tenor voice. Which has served you well in roles like Sancho Panza and, yes, uh, and Tobias and Rag and Sweeney Todd. And Venetian twins. Yes, Lilia. Signora Beatrice, I'm yours to command. You'd be foolish to refuse me. I am handsome, rich and witty. Foolish I may be, signor, but today, today, Follow you. Oh no! I'll give you everything, everything, everything. Footmen, grooms, a coach and pair. How dare you offer her anything? She's in another's care. And who is that, sir? I, sir. You, sir. He, sir. I, sir. And who are you, sir? 
her brother, her father, some kind of chaperone. None of these, senor. A loyal friend. 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 Who's here to help a woman on her own? To help a woman on her own. A helpless woman on her own. To help a woman on her own. To help a helpless, helpless woman on her own. To help a helpless, helpless woman on her own. Her paramour, her guardian, what rubbish! No, it's true. Her guardian, she needs a guard against a man like you, Signora. He's a common cad, a wretched parvenu. A parvenu. Precisely, sir. And low and vulgar too. Signor, these grand and adjectival insults threaten your survival. Any man who'll stay alive will be advised. I brook no rival. He'll brook I brook no rival. <laughs> You buffoon! You malapert! You waterfly! You upstart! You poltroon! Oh, save your insults, gentlemen! They lead to bloodshed soon! To bloodshed? No, it's all hot air within this big balloon! The hand that wields this sword is Dabsa! Let it jab, sir! Stop this gab, sir! I will lay you on the slab, sir! Carve you up for shish kebab, sir! I met Sheldon through through that. The Venetian Twins? Yes. Do you remember that moment? Oh, I remember the very moment. Did, 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 uh, could you hear an orchestra play? Did, no. Did it, fireworks go off? No, they did for him. Right. They did for him. Why didn't they for you? Because I was carrying a torch for a, a guy that I'd left in Melbourne who turned out to be a an opportunist and a bit of a wastrel but very hot and I'd never had someone hot in my life before and so the dick the dick did the work and it wasn't until I finally got rid of him and realized he what he was and then th- three girls in the in Venetian Twins, Valerie Bader, Annie Byron and Jennifer McGregor, realised that she, poor Sheldon was pining. They set us up. They set us up. And then a, a little while after, we were sort of like having the, the affair. And I began to realise I'd fallen in love with him properly. And hence... Here we are now. Well, and how long have you been with Mr. Tony Sheldon? 41. That's extraordinary. It's good. That's great. It's good. 
and we laugh, I swear to God, we laugh till we ache almost every day. And interestingly, in this pandemic, we act every single day. I don't know whether anything will come of this, but we fall into almost like improvisational character work every, every, every day. Different, different voices, different scenarios, stuff that goes nowhere, st stuff that continues. Um, we've got, a, we've got a, a, an ongoing favourite as soon as dinner comes and these two, pe these two people come out and they make us laugh. The, these two people that we're playing make us laugh. And they also, it's, it's creation without pressure. Um, I find my, my brain has been damaged by what happened to me as a kid. It has definitely been damaged. So consequently, learning lines is torture. The propensity for blanking out on stage never go, has never gone away. I'll give you an example. In Shakespeare, I did um, As You Like It, the recent As You Like It for Peter Evans at the Bell Shakespeare, where John played um, Jacques, and I was um, a few parts. Old Adam I play. And I had a terrible moment um, with Orlando. And when you have a terrible moment, they tend to come back like demons. I'm going to get you now. I'm going to get. Sorry about the noise. Oh, that's right. I'm going to get you now. A drill to the listener. There's a, dr a drill in the apartment next door. Um, I'm going to get you now. And it used to get me every, almost every night. And uh, Charlie. Oh, forgive me, Charlie, who's playing um, Orlando, um, used to get me out of it. He squeezed me and says, Hi. Well, one night I got through it. And it was at the moment where old Adam says, I'm going to follow Orlando. I'm going to follow you. I'm, I've got money. I've been saving up. I've got money. I'll go with you. Group of, another group of actors were on the other side of the stage waiting for their scene to follow mine. I got through the scene with with Orlando, off he goes, and then I had a, about eight lines or nine lines that I had to say, which I always got right. They went. Instead, those lines went, and I'm by myself. And I went, and now I am going into the forest to find my father. Now, I was playing an 82-year-old man. <laughs> so, presumably Adam was going off to find his father who's sitting under a tree somewhere at 106. <laughs> so when I do have these horrible moments, a lot of people say, but we didn't know, we didn't know. But I'd be in the middle of this terrible panic. And I've always been able to sort of like wrangle my way out of it somehow. 
but it's horrible. I remember you, uh, it might have been when you were working at the MTC at one point, Yara, you talked about you had a terrible bout of stage fright. Oh, yes. I've had it on and off. And it stopped you off. from performing for a while. It did. Yeah. I was doing um, a production of um, Third Person Singular, Absurd Person Singular, sorry, for the MTC. And I got a moment, and it was in the Fairfax studio, and the, the audience is very close there. It's, it's a very tiny, intimate space. And um, I was doing a, a scene with Meredith Eastman as my wife, and my eyes happened to turn from her eyes just out, and just as that happened, a businessman, because remember it was a, a corporate audience, a businessman uh, yawned, like, why do they make us come to these things? And a wave of terror came upon me. And the voice said, gotcha, right. in my brain. Yeah. Now, I would go through my lines three times a day, first thing in the morning, all the way through, in, again in the afternoon, and then all the way to work. And by the time I got to work at five o'clock, the voice would say, ready for you, ready for you. And it would come d- at different times in the play. And f- finally I said to myself, if this is what acting is going to be like from now on, I don't want to do it anymore. But the irony was that I ended up in a call centre. There used to be a number that, that uh, people went to. Well, Cellar Masters was still one, was one that's still going now. There was one called Pinpoint, which was in, um, in Balmain. And there's another one, um, there was one, another one in, um, in, the t- in, in town. And um, the irony is, do you work in a call centre? It's, it's worse on your nerves than being an actor. You wonder why we do it to ourselves. Uh, something that I think it's an addiction. I think like it's an addiction, addiction yeah. to adrenaline. To adrenaline. Adrenaline. Yeah. And applause, or laughter. Oh, laughter for sure. Yeah. Laughter for sure. Not the terror. Um, not the terror. The terror is really dreadful, and some people don't get it. Remember, you know, you would have known that Olivier had it, and you couldn't act with Olivier once he was in the middle of this bout, this terrible trough of stage fright, unless you um, acted to his, to the top of his hairline. But if you hit him in the eyes, he would fall to pieces. Weird, so weird. But it's going, as I said to you before, the, um, the not that I'll probably ever act again at this moment. Well, I was gonna say, we, we can look forward to your King Lear. Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> as he goes off to find his father in exactly. the Exactly. Yes. You became a drama teacher. I did. I was a drama teacher um, after, because I went to Teachers College. Yeah. Was that Rosden? No, I no, went to uh, the Melbourne Secondary Teachers College, which doesn't exist anymore. It's now been swallowed up by the Melbourne University, but it was on the grounds of Melbourne University. Um, and um, I taught in a high school, in a suburban high school in Melbourne at Brunswick, Brunswick High School. Um, my star pupil when I was there, I was 23, I think, when I, when I went to, or 21, 22, something like that, when I did my first year. And in my first year, as a drama teacher, Maria Mercedes was one of my pupils, and she was a star then. Brilliant. She still calls me Sir. Really? Whenever we see each other. <laughs> God love her. Yeah, so I did that for three years, but then I joined the, the Pram Factory, and I was working at the Pram Factory at night and teaching in the day. 
And who, who were the lecturers that taught you, trained you to be a drama teacher? Um, a guy called Ron... Uh, oh, dear, help me. There's the brain going. Max Gillies right. was one of my tutors. Claire Dobbin. Um, Ron... Gone, sorry. That's the, that's the brain finally seized up. Um, was Kerry Dwyer a teacher? Kerry Dwyer was a teacher of drama and a friend of, Kerry, of Claire Dobbin. And they came to see me do something at Teachers College. And they kept me in mind. And Kerry, I think I still have the, the letter. Kerry Dwyer wrote to me and asked me if I would attend a meeting of what was to become the Pram Factory. So that's how you yes. got involved with APG? Yes. Great. It was an invitation. And you're one of the original members of the Pram Factory? The APG itself had worked at La Mama as a space. For the, you know, the company had worked at La Mama. So was La Mama, a, a, that was just a theatre? La Mama is a theatre which run by a woman called Betty Burstall. Right. Burstall. And uh, it was a, a, a venue for hire. She was very keen, of course, on, on, on um, New Wave Theatre and leftist stuff and all that sort of stuff. It wasn't a company as such. No, though, it was no. a building. But, but people like Jack Hibbard had premiered oh, yes. Dim Builder there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But it was, a theater, it was a space for hire. She would program the companies or the individuals who wanted to rent it for the amount of time each time and then we would change, change uh, you know, program. But it wasn't a company itself. So who was behind ABG and getting it started and had the idea? Well, that was Max Gillies. That was uh, people like Jack Hibbard. It was John Romrell. It was uh, Bill Garner, um, then married to Helen Garner, the author. Monkey um, Grip. Monkey Grip? Monkey Grip. Yeah. And um, when I joined, they had found a space which was in Drummond Street opposite the cop shop, um, which was, had been an old pram factory. Making prams. Making prams. It's extraordinary the spaces that can be found, isn't it? But Balboa Street was an old tomato sauce factory, right. wasn't it? Yeah. And I think the new theatre in King Street was a piano factory. Right. Yeah. So I remember the, the, the time we, uh, we cleared it out. There were two spaces. It was upstairs, which was the main, the main theatre, and downstairs uh, was like a, a st- what had been stables. And bef- uh, I think before then, the whole building had been a gate lodge for a... a posh mansion that stood somewhere else um, and I can remember us clearing it all out we, that someone found a hose a fireman's hose and hosed it out a lot of the stuff out the detritus into the street it was one of the most exciting things I've ever done so I began um, teach, I was teaching um, uh, kids drama in a permanent state of terror my whole life was a state of terror did you enjoy teaching or...? Oh, I loved it. But I, the discipline... Because sometimes, before you can even teach, it's, it's the discipline. It's getting the focus there, isn't it? Getting the kids to... You, what you have to find... What you finally find out is the work is the discipline. You suck them in to the joy of the, joy of the exercise and then, then you've got them. But I still think it should be a, um, um, an elective. I don't think you can make kids do drama. I think they were, certainly after sec, second year, I don't think you should make, make kids do drama. Right. And they made me teach third form and fourth form, and that's not the time for a lot of kids to want to do stuff like that. No. no. So I, that was very hard. And it was also hard um, 
then I was struggling with my sexuality because I hadn't come out at all. And I was also struggling with tiredness, both teaching and working at the pram factory. So, so you'd finish class at 3.30, school at 3.30 yeah, or something. Yeah, have a bit of something to eat in Carlton and then start rehearsals or start performance. Right. So I was a wreck. How long did you keep that going? Three years. Then I had a nervous breakdown. Right. And we put away for a while. I'm not dangerous now. Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was... And then... And it's then, interesting because your dad was, was put um, yes. into care for yeah. a while. So. Yeah, yeah. And, and two, I mean, I know this conversation's going all over the place, but that's what an actor's life does. Um, I had troubles with drinking too for a while. Right. For quite a long time, actually. Quite a long time. What about grandparents? Did they? My grandfather did, the one that was blown right. so, up. So it could be in the DNA or I something? I think it's in the DNA. I'm tru- I really truly think it is. And I've gone through periods of sobriety, um, for long periods of sobriety, especially when Sheldon um, got sober. Um, I was with him on the journey of sobriety for quite some time, but the taste of it always undoes me. I can't do it. But now I've um, been off it for a number of, almost a year, I think, now. It's something I think of frequently. Well, it's just a thing that you suddenly go, that's it. Don't want to do this anymore. Want to... And it is that overnight, you wake up and think, that's it now. Um, There was a big bohemian culture around Carlton at that time. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The hippies, of course, were in full force. There was a place around the corner from the Pram Factory called the... the, uh, Oh, what's it called? Something Inn. It was a place where you could go and get dope, you know. Um, There was a lot of heroin at the Pram. Because the pram factory was an um, the the pram factory was an umbrella term for a number of groups within it, so there were you know political group and then there was sort of like an entertainment group which from which the Hills Family Show uh, emerged. Um, the most successful child of the pram was probably Jack Hibbard's work, John Romrell's work, but more than more than anything, it would be the Hills, which was a group devised show. Which was about old vaudevillians? Yeah. Or old vaudevillian family? Yeah. So were you drawing on your, your, your seaside totally. entertainment? Totally. And, and Zert at the Sand Lady? Totally. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Um, I wrote all the lyrics for the songs that we used, apart from, you know, classics, you know, classic numbers like um, Anything Goes and all that sort of stuff. We, we, it was a total mixture. The premise was that we invent, we wanted to invent characters from scratch. So Max Gillies came up with the idea of, well, why don't we invent a family? And so we invented a family, all of whom had names. Then the Hills came up as a name of the family. So they were called the Hills family. And we decided that they were going to be a, fa- uh, they had, for 15 years had been in retirement after television came in in the 1950s 56 and they'd all gone their separate ways and the premise was they've come back to the pram factory for one final show and what happened was the 
within the fa- the Hills family, there was a classic theatre um, posh element, and then there were the vaudevillians who wanted slapstick bum bum jokes and fart jokes and things like that. And throughout the whole of the evening, th- there was fights between members of each faction, which culminated in in a terrible brawl at the end and then grandma bringing us all together to say the show must go on you've got to stop behaving like this you've got to be a family who are the actors that you're working with evelyn crape max gillies the late fame okoto um who um went oh, more than 20 years ago now uh originally bob thornycroft went into it robert meldrum who is um molly meldrum's brother sue ingleton uh, and then we had seri- we had a series of versions. So Bob Thornycroft left and people like Jack Viner came in and um, eventually uh, Rob Meldrum left and we ended up with a, a group of, far- of five and that group is the one that came to Sydney and performed at the Bondi Pavilion. Around that time, am I right in thinking that in Sydney the legend of King O'Malley is happening? That's right. So it's amazing how these entertainments draw on that vaudevillian That's tradition. Right. And even sort of flash forward to last year, the recent years, Calamity Jane, which you toured in, yeah. still uses that vaudeville tradition. It does. To, to, it does. Something you do very well. Oh, well, it's in my blood. I mean, you know, we are talking before about um, old radio programs and you know, Hancock's Half Hour and Round the Horn and all that sort of stuff was uh, part of the Sunday lunchtime menu in the in the home so I learned about jokes I learned about gags I learned about I learned about voices I mean Hattie Jakes Hattie Jakes that wonderful big hearted woman when I talked at NIDA um, I made a face now sorry um, we won't talk about that um, you were you were head of acting weren't you I was a, I was a joint head of acting with two other um Oh, a try, a try, yeah, of... which of course was the most ridiculous thing. But anyway, I, I an would, experiment, an experiment, and it <laughs> failed. Um, but I would, I would get the kids to um, to mimic my mimicking. There was one episode where Hattie Jakes um, ha- had to say the line: "All I can see on the wallpaper are bunches of grapes." The way she did it was, all I could see on the wallpaper are bunches of grapes. And I would say, listen to the music. Mm, mm, mm. Try and listen to the music of everybody you hear, every person you meet, every person you sit next to on the bus. Try and hear their music. Even this flat Australian kind of blah has a music. It's very, very distinctive, and it's very different. Try and do it. I did not last the four years that I had put myself aside for to teach at NIDA. I did two. Then the system of fear under which it was run uh, overcame me. And much political machination? Shocking. I'm not going into details because it's yeah. just it's just drags it all up. But it was a very very 
very hard place to be and it did not serve the people it should have served which is the students and they should not have been taken out at the end of second year if they weren't any good or didn't seem to be suitable to the system to to the to the theatrical or the film industry too bad we chose them and they would start to go when they realized that second year was a cull year they would get themselves into a panic they would dig themselves into holes that they could not get out of and it was wrong was there much political um argy-bargy at the pram factory oh god yes yeah there was because a thing called the collective uh, meeting. So was it an artistic director or no. did you all have a say? We all had a say. Right. Which so was, that would prick on lots of... And of course, at the collective meeting, dope was wafted around like you wouldn't believe and, and drink. And also they ran, it, um, they ran the meetings on the Westminster system of debate, which I didn't know anything about. I didn't know you had to wait for the third twink, twinkle past a, a heckle and fr- a freckle before you could say anything. So you sat there in terror. You were expected to tow a party line, which was heavily leftist. And um, and sometimes I would go, that's wrong. You know. Well, I believe you were encouraged to sort of give up your uh, appreciation of main stage theatre. and, and theater Oh, and I gave all my show albums away. Yeah, so you, you collected show albums. You, oh, you, yeah. You'd stop going to the MTC. Yes. Because... Because that was the enemy. That was the enemy. And in fact, the MTC and JCW and the Tivoli taught me all the basic principles of of show business. They taught me, as an audience member, how to be an actor. As much as acting... Because I didn't go have formal training, um, except the stuff that we used to do in the drama section at teachers college but it wasn't they weren't training us to be teachers to, to be actors they were training us to be teachers who taught drama which is different drama and theatre are two different things educational drama is different to you know teaching kids how to put a show on yeah what was the mission then of the of the Pram Factory was it new Australian development it was to be works? do Australian work and be an alternate alternative to the um slavish devotion to um, mostly English and sometimes American classics. Were you aware of what was happening in Sydney with Jane Street and Not the really. old Toad and all that no, sort of thing? No, I wasn't. Right. I think a lot of people like Hibbard and Romerald. But I was never an academic. I'm not an academic. I don't, I don't understand academic. I don't have the intellect. I'm not an intellectual at all. You were, were cast in the, the world premiere of Don's Party. I was. David Williams? I was. A Simon, the dentist. A Simon. And Graham Blundell took my... Um, no, he's not a dentist. Simon is there's another guy. An accountant or something. I don't yes, know. that's right. But um, I, I remember when I saw the film, there was Graham Blundell being me. Now, not stealing the, the performance, film. but he was certainly influenced by how I looked. So was Blundell at the Pram Factory? Oh, yes. Oh. Um, he left um, to pursue his own career. Some people were left were thrown out at the collective meeting. Bill Garner was thrown out. Voted off the island. Yes. He reminded me when he came back. And Tony Taylor, you were the one of the, one of the people who voted against me. I remember that. I went, I can't remember a thing. I was probably <laughs> drunk. Or stoned. <laughs> drunk or stoned. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. The health department closed it down in the first year. 
I don't remember that. Well, I left um, after Marvellous Melbourne, which was our first show. Marvellous Melbourne was um, a a show that um, was based around the life of Melbourne, the political and social life of Melbourne in in 1888. I think it was a time of a an exposition or something at the exhibition building. And I finally blew up and left the uh, pram factory. Was that because of your performance as a, f- a flag designer? It was because I was in the middle of that nervous breakdown. Right, okay. You know, I had to take some time off. I went back, and that's, when I went back, that's when we created the hills and the puppets, there was a puppet section that I was into, Popeye puppets. We created a number of puppet shows, including stuff that we wrote, a version of The Owl and the Pussycat, the Edward, Edward, Lear, Edward Lear poem. And um, we also did The Elephant Calf by Bertelt Brecht as a puppet play, um, which was, I think, I think it was a second, uh, it was a double bill. I can't remember what was on the first of the bill, but we were we certainly close with The Elephant Calf. And that was tremendous fun, working with puppets. And where are you getting the audience from? Oh, we had a we had a, a mixed audience. We had the converted mostly, the, the politically converted were the main audience. But when we did the Hills family, it brought in a brand new group of people because it the reviews were you couldn't write them yourself. It was a cause celebre. And I remember Gloria Dawn came to see it and sat on upright like a, her back like, like, a, like a knife straight on these horrible seats. Um, it was during the Hills family that we discovered that um, holes were being uh, drilled in the teaspoons because the heroin, um, the heroin segment um, had taken over and for some reason, we, as a, a collective, realised it was a political duty to accommodate um, heroin addiction. And we'd come in sometimes and the soundboard had gone. Having to, to been be sold. sold. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I, got out of, um, I got out of the pram before it finally closed. So we had to close around... 1980? Or about, about 80, 81. I, so only for about 10 years. Yeah. yeah. And um, it was demolished. All the uh, archives have ended up, I think, in Pakapanyol. Did you know there's an, the army has a, an archive at Pakapanyol? Theatre archive? Mm. For, really? Mm. So all of the pram factory stuff ended up there. Um, I do have one thing left of it, of the pram. I came in one day and they changed the lock on the door of the of the building and they'd installed a modern stainless steel lock and on the floor is a brass filigree heavy duty beautiful original lock I have that while they were turning they'd hoped to keep the facade of the pram factory open in what is now Coles uh, Woolworths and now it houses the Ligon Street Cinema and it fell. They, what they were de- demolishing around fell and killed an, a labourer. Oh. So there's nothing physical of the pram fracture left except the lock that I have, 
shall we show you when you go? Please do, please do. So it's like improvisation was at the base of creating a lot of that work. A lot of it. Um, improvisation, in fact, the, however, is not one of my strong points. Talking about something and writing it down and having a laugh around the table, fabulous. But get up on your feet and trying to improvise, I'm hopeless. Right. I did one, one uh, trip, um, trip, one episode of the televised version of Theatre Sports on the ABC for Dennis Watkins. And you've got me, Valerie Bader, Stephen Thomas and Gillian Hyde on. Created a team, we had a sh- you know, shirts that matched and all that sort of stuff. And we realised that we didn't know how to play these games. In the midst of playing a game, I, I rung the curtain down. Because Cause what's the point of going on? If you It was. That's why I thought, yeah. I've been so bad, I'll ring the curtain down. And Gillian was saying, I had another verse, I could have saved us. It's awful. You know sometimes when you lie in bed at three o'clock in the morning, you wake up and you play with your past, your past oh, yes. at transgressions? Yes. I will play me ringing down on national TV in shame. I will play, I'll play that video over and over again. Well, the success of theatre sports too depends on the, the the synchronicity of those teams who've worked together yeah. quite frequently yeah. and and know how each other. Look, can work. When you you mentioned Calamity Jane before. When we did Calamity Jane, the three fa- f- most fabulous improvisations. There's Rob Johnson, Sheridan Harbridge, and Virginia Gay, amongst others. But those three, you can stand them on stage and get them going and off they'll go like like a rocket. I can't do that in front of an audience because the terror comes in. I can do it with Sheldy at night time over our, our toast and crumpets and stuff. There's no audience there. There's no audience. Okay. There's freedom. There's total freedom. Yeah. But um, no, I wasn't a good improvisator. An imbr- in front of an audience, no. Except when I... When I lose my lines, as I said before, I can make something up. And now I'm going into the forest to find my father. (laughs) What brought about the move to Sydney? John Bell um, had seen me in something. I think it must have been The Hills. He would have seen The Hills at um, Bondi Pavilion. Because you bought it? uh, Yes, we did. uh, We went to Adelaide. We did the Adelaide um, Festival Centre. And then we moved to um, and did about six weeks at... uh, at the Bondi Pavilion, where we died for two weeks. No one was coming. Then all of a sudden, the word got out that there was this mad group of idiots performing this anarchic show, and it became a hit. And as a result of that, John was going to do what I thought was going to be a straight production of um, Goldoni's Servant of... Uh, Servant Venetian of No, the Venetian Twins. Yes. But I didn't realise it was to be a musical until I got there for the first day of rehearsal, and they said... And Terry Clark's written all this music, and and he hadn't written the song that I was to be in with Sheldon and um, Jennifer McGregor. The uh, there's a trio at the end of Act One, which is all quite high, isn't it? It's opera- well, operatic in style. And uh, Terry Clark said, "Well, I've got to find um, Tony Taylor's range." So uh, I, I didn't brought any music because I didn't think it was going to be a musical. And he said, uh, sing, have, uh, no, sing, uh, waltzing, uh, no, uh, yes, waltzing Matilda. 
so I sang, you know, once a jolly dragon, and he went up and up and up and up and up until finally it was like only dogs can hear. And at the same time, I was so, you know, bewildered about that I forgot the words of Wanting Matilda and started making them up. You know, and the swagman shoved his what's your name into something. <laughs> it was, it was, became more and more obscene. And that's one of the things that cemented Sheldon's affection for me, you know, this ludicrous voice and this ridiculous person. Could make him laugh. Mm. So you're working with uh, Terry Clark and Nick Enright. Yes. And John Bell directed, didn't he? John Bell directed and uh, two choreographers. Nancy Hayes directed the vaudevillian side of it and Keith Bain directed the more classical style because, you know, it was classes involved, you know. Um, Drew Forsyth's extraordinary performance, which had we taken it to the, to Ameri- to, um, the West End would have made him a star. Was there talk of that? Or? Yes. Right. So I don't know what went wrong with the negotiations, but it didn't happen. Should have happened. Did you sense that it was going to become, that it could become an Australian classic? Yes. I think only in the way, only in the way that it was performed at the Opera House on Stephen Curtis's extraordinary set, which was a, a ramp, and audience was, you know, general public audience was seated on stage as well on either side of that ramp, as well as the main house, and the the anarchic nature of it all. And of course, the great John Ewing. Oh, extraordinary. Pancrazia. Um, I didn't see that production, but I saw the revival, which had uh, Jonathan Bickens and Jeffrey right. Lemon. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's one of the funniest nights I've had in the in the theatre ever. It, it's hilarious. Yeah. It's an, a hilarious piece. I'm no coward. <laughs> That's Sheldon's line. Well, I was going to say, was there a lot of improvisation which took place in rehearsal? Which yes, the, I put I put something in which Nick didn't like. It didn't go into the finished script. I remember I said, um, I, th- I, g- I think I gave it to uh, Valerie Bader. And she, she, had a, she had an exit line that she wanted to do with... Um, uh, oh, help me, Lord. And she had an exit line. And I said, why don't you say, let's go in and watch the Tagliatelle? <laughs> I thought it was all right. Yeah, but he, he hated it. So it never went in. But yes, uh, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. No coward. It was Sheldon's line, and, and and Nick said, "Can I have it?" And he said, "Of course you can." Because they were oh, they were school friends, weren't they? Yes, they were. Yeah. They were. So did you go on after that to work at Nimrod more with uh, yes, well, you the, next and the thing night I, and the house wine? Oh well, that the the first. The next thing I did after that was that um, Neil Armfield cast me in uh, one of the island shows, you know, the the Clark Island shows. Um, I did uh, an Eleanor Whipcomb play called Pirates at the Barn, where I played played a 14-year-old child. Um, That was hard going, because there were two shows a day in all sorts of weathers out on that windy island. So was it was Nimrod producing those? Yes, or? yes, right. They did, they, they did Treasure Island. So they were in kids' entertainments. Big, uh, yes, children's yeah, children's and the audience would come by ferry from the Opera House. Right. And um, and I wrote one. I wrote one called "There's a Ghost on Clark Island," 
um, I made quite a bit of money out of that because it was the only island show that never got cancelled for weather reasons. So the, the money rolled in for that one, which is good. Um, then after that, that's when John and, um, and Neil asked us to uh, create You and the Night in the House Wine. So was that a review or what was that? They wanted a review, but we didn't know what to do. And they called us in on a Friday and gave us the brief that they wanted to some sort of review with a four-hander. And he was living in Glebe then. And uh, I think I was living in Paddington. Can't remember. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But um, so we said to them, can you give us till Monday before we give you a, a yes or a no? So we got home and the first thing Sheldon did was he got out all the albums and scripts of reviews from the West End and from Broadway. Julius Monk and, you know, stuff from the Village Vanguard and all the stuff, the reviewers and all that sort of stuff. And we couldn't come up with anything. And on the Saturday evening, after we'd gone through all this stuff, I got a migraine and I went to lie down and I had a dream. And I had a dream. It came to me like a dream. There it, was a cow. It, was, it is. It's like that. But I had this dream. When we were going back to Morecambe, uh, Christmas was a big deal in, in, in England in terms of um, not only the food and, and the gifts and things, but also afterwards there was always time for uh, par uh, party games. There was party games. There, I was into puppets when I was a little kid. That I would do a puppet show or a magic show. Um, one of the old older blokes would get up and tell a story, a ghost story or whatever it was, you know. So I had this dream, and this part, this party was going on. In you know, like my my mad memory of it, but there was an audience sitting around it, all applauding and laughing, and you know there would be a sing along. So they would. I said, so I went in and I said, Sheldon, I've had this dream. I said, I don't know if it's any good. It, 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 and I went, and I told him what I told you just then. And he went, it's brilliant. And this is the opening number. And he played Life of the Party from Happy Time. He said, that's the opening number. And he said, and I've got the opening number to the second half. He said, we'll write a ghost story. We'll write a pantomime in four sections, like a, like a serial. Uh, we'll play party games. We'll choose the ones that aren't... Uh, no, no audience participation. Nobody's got to, going to be put into any situation where they have to get up on stage or be humiliated. We'll do a quiz. We'll do a crossword. Um, and we sh shared that with um, John Bell and Neil Arthur. They said, go for it. So we wrote it. He wanted to work with Robin Mose, who, who we'd worked with before, and... She suggested Deirdre Rubenstein, who was in town at the time and about to start work on a show at the um, Q Theatre. And we asked her on the Sunday night if she'd be in it. And she said, I start work for uh, on Sweeney Todd tomorrow, the, the play, Sweeney Todd. Um, and we said, well, we're giving you this if you want to do it. So she had to ring up Arthur Dix at the Q, Q, Q Theatre and, and, um, and quit the night before they started their rehearsals. And he said, um, ah, yes. 
Someone who puts their career ahead of art and hard work. So we always throw that at her. Every time she gets a job, we always throw that. When we finally put this mishmash together, we invited John and um, Neil to the run-through. Everything that John liked, Neil hated, and vice versa. Right. So it stayed the way it was, apart from the preview, um, we chucked, we, it ran for too long. But then finally when it opened, it was a smash hit. And the reviews, well, you couldn't write them yourself. Do you read reviews? Not anymore. Right. No. The last review I read was uh, Accidental. And it was, um, I'd done a production of Importance of Being Earnest where Jeffrey was playing Lady Bracknell. And I was playing um, the Reverend thing. I forgot his name. Chaucer. So, not Chaucer, it's Chaucerable. Chaucerable. With the brilliant Jane Menelaus giving the performance of the evening, I think. It's prison. It's prison. Um, anyway, uh, I wasn't given much help. Nobody. Simon, I love Simon, but Simon doesn't help you if, you, if you're floundering. Or if you don't know what to do. The Simon Phillips, mm. director. Yes. And I think he would agree with me. I mean, it just is, you know, if you're in trouble, then you've got to get yourself out of it. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, I knew, I know that the, the, the last scene I wasn't good in. I was trying to compete with um, comedians as a comedian, as a comic actor, and I shouldn't have. Whereas the reference is straight man, really, in that place. Yeah. And I, I went too far. Anyway, at the end of the season, there was a pile of uh, publicity material left outside our doors, which I swear to God was a half a tree of paper. Disgraceful. And I was just flipping through. And I saw my photograph, a photograph of me, and then I read further down. And then, and, and it said in one sentence... And there was Tony Taylor in a travesty of of a performance. Oh, dear. I said, well, thank God. I saw that after the show had closed and not during. That little voice. No, I don't read them. I don't read them. Then it's not worth it. Because you can't... You've heard this old adage, if you believe the good ones, you've got to believe the bad ones. And I don't trust anybody here... John Shand, I appreciate his writing, but since Kipax, nobody, no, no reviewers have done anything close to what their job should be, which is to inform the audience of the context of the play, what the experience was like, like Kenneth Tynan does. He puts you on his knee, naughtily um, wicked sometimes, but he puts you on his knee and says, this is what I saw, and you see the play through his eyes. They don't do that anymore. An actor can experience a lot of rejection in their career. Mm-hmm. How, how does an actor equip themselves to cope with that rejection? Well, hopefully that you have a good sense of humour and that you can turn it into a story that will eventually be- become... Um, nothing. It doesn't matter. What you have to remember is, the, for the most part, the, the, the casting people and the director know exactly what they're, they're looking for, exactly what they're looking for. When they put on a show here, they usually want somebody who looks and acts exactly like the person who originated the show in the first place. 
So um, you get very disappointed when you don't get cast as Annie, you know, in the title role of Annie. It really hurts. <laughs> Little wigs. Mm. Little wigs. That's what I say. Um, the f- one story w- that I can tell you is um, I really wanted to play the baker in Into Wayne Harrison's Wood. production of Into the Woods. And Wayne wouldn't see me. I couldn't even get an audition. Sheldon got the job. Did that cause some upset at home? Because it would be rivalry occasionally, I imagine, yeah. because you're both similar age bracket. I think what's happened now, though, is we bless each other's fortune. But he came home on a Friday night and said, now I'm going to tell you something that's probably going to sort of like rank a little bit. It was the Friday before Christmas, I think, and Christmas was on Saturday or Sunday. He said, um, I've got into the woods. I went, oh, great. And he said, I've got the baker. I went, oh, great. Oh, and then I went, oh, great. Well, if it, I didn't get it, it's gone to the next best person, you know. Come Sunday, it was Christmas Day. Lamont came over. We all got a bit sloshed over Christmas dinner. And I went, I'm going to go for a walk. I'm just walk off this for a bit, you know. So I walked down Louisa Road. We were living in, in Birchgrove then. I walked down Louisa Road. And I was walking along. And I suddenly saw, a, on, the, on the sidewalk, a beautiful Labrador, white Labrador. I went, hello. And he went, Nyah. And I went, a dog bit me. And I didn't get into the woods. <laughs> And I ran down, all the way down to the end of Louisa Road and went to the park and sort of sat on a log and sobbed my heart out. Dear, dear. So, yes, it does affect you. And it does damage your, sometimes your self-worth if you let it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get disappointed. I, I really wanted to do um, Come From Away. And I did a really wonderful audition. I know I did. But I know now I wasn't right. I was probably too old and maybe too light. But I really did a good audition. And we know when you've done a good one. And what you have to say is you just weren't right for the role. You played Smike in The Life and Adventures of Nicholas Nickleby, that production that uh, the RSC had started, a huge epic production with a huge company. What's it like being part of a large group of actors presenting? Oh, look, it was a joy. I mean, the one thing about Richard Werrett and slash John Gayden, who was his associate director, Richard really knew how to cast well. He knew how, how to put a great team together. And when I read it, I read the book, I went, oh, fuck, this is amazing. When I read, they sent me the script. And I, of course, went, oh, I've got to do Smike. I've got to do Smike. I, I know it. there's something in this that I can do. I can, really can do it. And I knew there was moments of comedy in, in Smike, as well as being this terribly, dreadfully beaten creature. There was moments of genuine hilar- hilarity. So I read it and said to my agent, I want to play Smike. And Richard got in touch with me and said, look, we, we're thinking of somebody else's Smike. So I sent the script back. 
they said there's a whole lot of roles you can play you know and I love playing multiple roles because I love to be different every time I I do a role. I like it to be different. I like the song, the the voice to be different, the look to be different. Physicality. I just like to yeah. play somebody different. Uh, and he went, oh, well, look, it's not as simple as that. We do really, we really are interested in you being Smike, but we're waiting till we find the Nicholas. And then when they found John Howard, then they cast me. But I was having terrible trouble in rehearsals becoming that person until there was a moment where I had to say goodbye to Nicholas's mother with, his, with um, Kate Nickleby and they were taking my character Smike to Devon to die. And he, by then he'd already fallen in love with, with Kate. And I couldn't get him. I tried his voice right up there. I was, do I was doing the whole thing right up there. And of course, everybody knew, realised I sounded like Mickey Mouse. But I couldn't get out of it. And then we were rehearsing in the Wharf, the Wharf Theatre, uh, Wharf rehearsal room. And I got to the, the moment where I had to turn around in between. I was in the middle and I had to go like this to Joan Bruce, who was playing Mrs Nickleby, and I suddenly went, oh, the last time I ever saw my father, I was waving goodbye to him. And I lost it. In the rehearsal room. In the rehearsal room. I went over into a corner and I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And God loving, John Howard came over to him and he said, what's the matter, mate? And I said, I just waved goodbye to my father. He said, well, you've got Smike, haven't you? Yeah. And I did. All I had to do... You can go there once in rehearsal and then just replicate yeah, that. I found him. Mm. And uh, uh, plus, with, with God Love Him, with um, uh, the late... Uh, oh, movement from NIDA again. Um, oh, Keith Bain. Keith Bain taught me how to do the physicality, which gave me a hernia. I still have a hernia from a fall that I took. And that's 1983. I took a fall on stage and fell badly and doing... I've got this hernia, which I call Herman. Herman the Herman. But uh, in terms of the show, um, it was a joy to do. The revival wasn't as much a joy because there was personality problems, which we won't have to go into. No, no. Did how, how are plays made? Because you, uh, you've written in a range of styles, drama, comedy, review, children's theatre, cabaret. How do you go about writing something? Know what it is you want to do. Uh, wait for the deadline. And it all just happens. It all just happens. And I'm very, I'm very, very um, for um, waking up, being woken up, woken up by the muse to have to write at three o'clock in the morning. Go back to bed. Oh, I've got another idea. Get up, do it. You know, I get transformed. If I'm not in that zone of captured zone, then I find it very hard. I found it very hard. But once I'm... And I would rather scrape the inside of the oven out than start. But once, especially Sheldon says, don't you think it's time you wrote that... started writing? Oh, I suppose so. Then I'm on. I'm, I'm off like a, like a jockey. And I go and I watch the play being performed as I write it. I, I watch it as though I was in the audience. That's how I do it. Tell me about the popular mechanicals. 
um, the current, the then current um, publisher, the head editor of uh, Currency Press, um, was uh, oh Catherine Brisbane's husband. Oh, please help me. Nicholas, no, no, Parsons, Philip. Philip Parsons and Wayne Harrison came up with the idea of setting up in the Wharf Rehearsal Room 1 a presentation of two plays, Hamlet and um, Henry IV Part 1 in repertoire done in the physical way the Globe Theatre operated with a standing audience. And one of the, uh, the uh, things was at the end of a Shakespearean play, there was usually a, a, a little short play called A Jig, which was a dirty sort of like little kind of Chaucerian filth fest, very Pasolini-ish, you know. A Chaucerian filth, filth fest. fest. yeah. Should be more of them. They should be. <laughs> well, he gave me a book of jigs, and one was called Singing Simpkin, and it was all right. But there was nothing left. And that was to end Henry IV Part One. He wanted another one to end Henry IV Part, uh, Hamlet. And there wasn't one. So I thought, well, I'll write one. So I wrote one called The Widow's Wind, which was about uh, young lovers who were thwarted by the beastliness of her, mo- her mother. And uh, he, they went to a witch and the witch said, give her this soup that's got, you know, concoction in it and she will change your mind and you will be wed well of course what she gave made the widow fart and she had to smell her own fart so we invented with Keith Robinson the genius we uh, invented this routine a fart routine where he literally farted himself almost to death and uh, Paul Blackwell the late Paul Blackwell uh, played uh, the sound effects of fart well it brought the house down People were wetting themselves with laughter, and we said, "What if we had a we, we, we wrote an Elizabethan vaudeville, as though vaudeville existed in?" And then we thought, "Well, that's not good enough. What could be a, a better hook?" So I came up with the idea of what happens to the mechanicals from the dream when Bottom goes off into the forest. They still got a play to do. Let's follow their journey and include the widow's wind and a ballet of. Uh, um, with rubber chickens, uh, which has become legendary. <laughs> you had two collaborators on that, Keith Robinson and, and William Shakespeare. And, and a lot was done by Geoffrey too. He did a lot of wonderful... Geoffrey Rush, who Jeffrey directed Rush, that original production. Yeah. We asked he, him, he'd been at uh, Lecoq. He uh, had. The he had. School. Yeah. And he was also an amazing um, inventor of gags. He, inv- he, I saw, he, we got a couple of chickens and went uh, to, a, to, he was staying with um, Dennis Watkins at the time and he choreographed the chicken ballet um, with these chickens and getting more and more wilder, 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 wilder um, to, uh, to uh, music that he, in his head, he knew, he knew exactly what the music was going to be. What makes a good actor, TT? Someone who can make you believe that you are seeing the truth. What does repetition do, though? Does that wear away the truth? Or? No, because you have, that's one of your arts, is you've got to try and pretend that it's happening for the first time every time you do it. The most important person in the theatre is the, is the audience. And whatever method you use, 
whatever method there is, I don't know what method there is, um, it's your job to make them believe that you are what you say you are or believe what you say you believe or think what you, you say you're thinking. And whatever method you do for that to happen, it's yours. There is no method as far as I'm concerned. It's your own personal process, you know. Um, TT is perhaps an obvious nickname for Tony Taylor. Yeah. Where did TT come from? Who who uh, anointed that on you? Do you remember? Yeah, it was Sheldy. You've always been known as TT. Yeah. 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 I never got. I was never called TT at um, the Pram Factory. So I think it was Sheldon. But just because you're a couple and you're both Tony. Yeah, and also because his mum's called Tony. Right. If we were at a gathering of any sorts and someone says Tony, we all get whiplash. So now we've got TT, Sheldy and Lamont. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> what do you fear? I've got to actually say nothing. Yeah. I really don't have any fear of anything. Um, I think the fight and f- fright and flight... Flight or fright. Yes. Yeah. That, is a, that is ingrained and you can only know that when it happens as a result of something that threatens you greatly. Then, But to actually... I don't do anything like lying in bed thinking about the world or nothing. Nothing. Because there's nothing you can do about it. No. If, if there is something you can do about it, then why be afraid? Well, that's right. We're in very precarious times, and, I mean, if you invested in a worry about everything that's going on... Well, it actually destroys the moment. It, it would destroy the moment that we are having at this very moment yep. to worry about things like that. How do you define love? Oh, I think it's the extreme form of care... And it's the extreme form of kindness. And it's the extreme form of trust. And it's the extreme form of anything that you can wish any living creature in the world. I find it very hard at the moment. I'm very, very solid and safe when I'm in this room. But if I go out into Katoomba Street and to Coles, it's very quickly that I can become... I can become an uncaring, unselfish, unsel- uh, impatient creature, which is, of course, what we all can be at any one time. We can all be the wonderful things, and we can all be the hateful things. The hard thing is not to act on those dreadful negative feelings. We're all capable of playing more than one character. We are. <laughs> Tony Taylor, thank you so much. This has been a phenomenal conversation. Oh, darling, it's thank been you. tremendous to yeah. be with you, and thank you for asking me. Well, let's go and have some cake. Yes. What a great joy it was to share that time with Tony Taylor. TT, a man of generous spirit, great passion, and considerable talents. Stages heads towards another double episode next week as we traverse and celebrate the career of Rhonda Birchmore. As you might assume, Rhonda is great fun, and we discuss everything from her recent time in the jungle to the conquering of the West End stages of London in productions of Sugar Babies, Stop the World I Want to Get Off, and Hot Shoe Shuffle. Not to be missed. Thanks for listening today. As always, I'm Peter Eyes. Keep well, keep warm, and I'll catch you next time.